0: You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. That sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. Where we need to go, this isn't a restaurant problem. This is a problem that we have with our culture, and that's what needs to change. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit
1: down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's hospitality industry. For this episode, we're sitting with one of the most talented chefs in New York City, founding chef of Gramercy Tavern. He currently has six restaurants spanning across New York, Los Angeles, and Vegas. In addition to that, he has eight sandwich restaurants called Witchcraft. He has multiple James Beard Foundation awards. He has three cookbooks, of which one happens to be my favorite, Think Like a Chef. And if that wasn't enough hints, he's top chef's head judge, Chef Tom Colicchio. All right, here's the deal. I'm super excited about this episode because it's very relevant right now. The food industry and restaurants and chefs have been making headlines, it's no surprise, and Tom has something to say about it, and you're going to wanna hear it. I've been a big fan of Colicchio because out of the hundreds of thousands of restaurants across this country, He's been one of the loudest voices when it comes to speaking up for the food world, specifically on increasing access and affordability to nutritious food for all Americans. Tom appeared in and served as executive producer of a great documentary film called The Place at the Table. This is a documentary about food insecurity in America. It was produced and directed by his wife, Lori Silverbush, along with Christy Jacobson. This movie actually became a launchpad for a national movement centered on ending hunger in the United States. In addition to that, Tom also co-founded Food Policy Action. He did this in collaboration with national food policy leaders. What Food Policy Action does is holds legislators accountable for their voting record around food by issuing an annual scorecard. They also coordinate lobbying efforts by chefs from all 50 states and run campaigns to increase consumer awareness and action around food system reform. <sighs> As if that wasn't enough, Calicchio and his restaurants give back to the community through various organizations such as Children of Bellevue, City Harvest, Wholesome Wave, and I'm sure plenty more. All right, you ready? Buckle up and please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Chef Tom Calicchio.
0: I'm Tom Calicchio. I'm um, actually here in my office uh, above Craft Restaurant on 19th uh, between Park and Broadway. In, in Manhattan, so I want to start with a couple
1: of things. One, I've done a, a little bit of a lot of things in the industry, and I have to tell you that one of my first cookbooks I ever fully indulged in was think like a Chef oh, and I still have it on my shelf and I tell most people who come to me with what cookbook should I get or they're starting culinary school and i I just I still reference how great of a mm. book that is so. Thanks for working on that.
0: Yeah, thanks. You know, it's, <laughs> it's funny, after that book, I, I you know, cause I, I resisted writing a book for a long time, and finally I, I thought I had something to say. And I, I've written two other books since and really didn't have a lot to say when I wrote them, and they, they weren't as good. That's funny. And I'm working on one now, and I'm struggling because I've actually owed my publisher a book for six years, and uh, I just keep putting it off because I really, I, I don't. I don't want to write just another cookbook. And I don't know what my my point of view is right now. And so I'm struggling with it. That's fair. I was
1: was talking to Gail a few weeks ago about hers. And she's like, honestly, like I talked about a book. This one took a couple years, but I feel like I had something to put in it at this point. Right, right.
0: You know, I started gardening a couple years ago. And so I'm trying to maybe, you know, figure out a way to to incorporate that into a cookbook. Yeah. Um, Because it really has inspired me. I've just become passionate about it and kind of, you know I, I joke around and I say I'm, I'm, I read seed catalogs now like like uh, you know, I used to read Playboy back when I was like, a teenager <laughs> that's funny <laughs> um, but uh but yeah but i I think I'm getting there it's just you know I keep going back to the same themes and think like a chef. the idea of cooking without recipes, the idea of starting with one idea and working out because that's the way that I think so i I'm, I'm, I'm trying to still trying to piece it all together and it's it's it's, it's a struggle and and uh you know occasionally i'll I'll, I'll think about it and I'll get a burst of energy and yeah. work through some things and then I kind of hit a wall and then I put it, put it away but
1: it, it's getting there. I'm excited for you yeah. uh, to get there. Thanks.
0: Expressing my love for witchcraft
1: also I moved, I, I'm based in Chicago now I moved to New York City over 10 years ago and I started going to witchcraft and I was, if I could be honest I feel like it was ahead of its time into what you see today I'm like okay this is just good food from people who grow responsibly and it's what you want to eat and yeah.
0: nowadays people see that and they're like this is brilliant and yeah like, wait a second yeah all, all those buzzwords that you're seeing now, <laughs> farm to table and yeah. you know I always say farm to table, yeah, that's really great, but everything starts on a farm and ends up on a table. It's right. what, what farm and what table. <laughs> right. um, that that you know, preposition is pretty important there. But um, we started Witchcraft over 15 years ago, and we were pretty far ahead of our time. And we didn't do it because we thought there was an opening in the market, or we thought that we can you know, create a fast, casual concept that we can roll out and go public with, <laughs> which is great if we could do that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, we did it because we, we had a... I had a, a guy who worked my kitchen who was really passionate about making sandwiches. And as it turned out, so we had craft here on 19th street and then we had the space available next door and we opened up craft bar and then a the space available next door came up and the landlord said, do you want to take a look at it? And we were like, yeah, sure. It was a weird thing because we only had a one year lease. So we hmm. didn't spend money building the store out. We just kind of slapped it together. It was almost like a pop-up really. And it was usually successful. And so we were like, well, let's open more. But you know, the thing is we, we never looked at what our message was. All the things that are so important now when you're trying to build a brand, we we weren't focusing on what our message was we weren't focusing on you know this idea that Letting people know where we stand in terms of buying food from farmers, making better food, we just kind of thought, well, you know, this is what craft is all about, so people will understand that. Yeah. Well, as we found out over the years, and ten years later, twelve years later, we found out that most people didn't see the connection. Most people didn't even know that I was involved in witchcraft, <laughs> and so we kind of took a look at it. Plus, our stores—if you—if re- you walk into our stores, you wouldn't wouldn't know that we were using farmers. You wouldn't even know that we we're making sandwiches. And so we kind of took a step back and rebranded and and. Closed a bunch of the stores that that um, we couldn't retrofit, and opened up two new stores, and so we're kind of back on, on 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 making that viable again. But yeah, and you know so, the so the the marketplace is so crowded with fast casual brands, but you know we still think you know deep down inside we're a sandwich shop, we're uh, an upscale restaurant, putting great food between two pieces of bread at a much affordable a much more affordable price, and yeah, we do care about. The environment. We care about food, and we care about the the, the effects that it has on the environment, the uh, the effects that it has on diet and health and, and welfare. And so, we, we really care about those things, and we've always cared about those things. It's not something that we kind of dreamed up in a boardroom. Yeah. So we're we're really proud of that, and. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for, for mentioning it. Yeah, of course. So w- we're definitely going to get into in a, in a few minutes here how
1: you use your success and your name and your voice for good, which is an incredible thing and was quite refreshing to wake up to on CBS this morning. My wife and I were watching the panel, and she was lauding you on that and super, super excited and glad they did that, um, and you were a part of that. So just kicking it in here, is your life as a chef, um, chefs have a certain reputation what, what kind of chef would you say you are?
0: Well, I mean, it, it evolves. You know, when I started out, when I was 26, I was, you know, screaming, you know, raving. But I'm focused, <laughs> and, and, I'm, and, and I'm, I'm into my craft. And, and, and I, you, you learn, you grow. Um, I think some chefs grow, and some, some don't. And I grew very quickly. I realized very quickly, once I owned a restaurant, that you could do things differently, that I have as much impact quietly moving you know walking over to someone and telling them exactly what i want and how i want it and that had much more impact than screaming and yelling and and reflecting back on i I think that we were taught as young chefs we were all taught by yelling and screaming and then when i went to france i realized why because that's where everything was modeled from at least for 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 our restaurants and, and when i was coming up because most of the chefs couldn't communicate and most of the people who were working in kitchens, they were there not because of a love of food, most of them anyway, they were there because they couldn't go on further in their, in their education and they had to find a trade. I think where I really learned a, a valuable lesson, you know, I came up, the first restaurant that I worked in in New York was Quilted Giraffe. And Barry Wine, who was the chef and owner, was an attorney before he became a restaurateur and a chef. And he ran his kitchen very differently than some of the other restaurants that, that, uh, were out there. Most of the cooks who worked there were career change, uh, changers. They weren't what he called career cooks. He hired me as a career cook. And, and, and so I, I had a, a, different model, I think, working in, especially working with Barry and, uh, you know, he was wildly, wildly, you know, creative and successful. And the restaurant was very successful. And I realized that you don't have to be a You know, a raving lunatic. But, you know, it's still in the heat of battle, you raise your voice. But I always tried to make it where it wasn't personal. So that was, you know, when I was in my 20s and and when I opened Gramercy Tavern, um, you know, working with with Danny um, Meyer, it was also uh, someone else who felt the same way. You know, when Danny and I first got together and talked about opening a restaurant, we never talked about what kind of food we were going to do. We didn't talk about design. We talked about what kind of business we wanted to run, what kind of people we wanted to surround ourselves in. We looked at what was considered the norm in the restaurant industry and said, how can we change that? And that was going back, you know, 26 years ago, I think. Yeah. And even things like his dad and my dad both died of lung cancer. And we said, we don't want smoking in our restaurant. That was before smoking was banned in restaurants. And uh, we were willing to take that risk. And we were willing to go out there and say our, our employees' happiness was more important than our guest happiness. And, and, and make a personal statement about that and so you know I found a, a, another you know serious ally in terms of how I, I wanted to, to see the restaurant run and then you know craft, you know, I, I'm fortunate that for, for the last 17 years, I've had a woman who, who's run my business, and and several other women who were in high, uh, you know, positions in my company. And so, so that was would also that, that also informed the way I, I think about the issue. That there are many people's mind right now yeah. is sexual harassment in in our industry, and not only in our industry, but in every industry. Yeah. And also, I have to credit my wife. I mean, she's a strong feminist. And quite frankly, when you hear me talk about the things that I'm talking about, it's because her and I've had deep conversations about that. And quite frankly, you know, it's almost as if, um, she's, no you know, she's writing the script and I'm out yeah. there, I'm out there talking because- she, uh, I love
1: talking to her. Well, we've, we've had some conversations on the phone about some of the work she does and what, what, what is it going to be a quick five or 10 minute call is the an hour and five yeah. or hour and 10 minute call. <laughs> that's <but>. Lori, <laughs> <that's more>, yeah.
0: <laughs> kind of chef that I am now, I think is someone who's involved, um, I think also once I was on TV and you know, it's been 11 years now, I'm still surprised in 15 seasons, but I wanted to use my platform for, for good. So what what how would you describe yourself as as your role on TV? Yeah, my my role. It's a, it's a TV role. I you know I'm myself I I can't think of anybody else. I, I think they try to make me a little more stern than I am, you know. <laughs> but I think um you know last chance kitchen you see a different side of that. But uh <laughs> no, it's 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 TV. It's it's but I think at a certain point, we realized how serious, and, and when we started the show, we wanted to, you know, my my concern was that I wanted the industry that I'm in to really take it seriously, and so I really pushed the producers to make sure that we were really honoring the chefs who were coming out there and really working their, 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 their butts off and, and, you know, leaving their families behind, leaving their restaurants behind, and, and uh, you know, so I, I, I felt we owed it to them to make sure that this was authentic, make sure the Top Chef was, was authentic, and, you know, I, I just kind of feel like I'm, the, I'm the, the the moral conscience of the show where it's like with the producer saying, when food's ready, we're eating. Yeah. Like your cameras have to be ready. We yeah. can't sit there and eat, eat cold food. And we can't pretend that we're just kind of going through the motions here. Like this is serious. Like This is careers are made here. Sure. And, and we have to we have to take that seriously. And so so that's that's how I, I, I look at my role. My role is to be really I, I, I look at these chefs who are on the show as if these are cooks working in my kitchen and I gotta give them feedback. I have to be honest, I have to be you know, tough. But again, it's never personal. I'm not looking at someone going, I don't like the way you look, and so I'm gonna tell you that your food's bad. No, this, it's about the food and that's it. I don't care what you're doing back at the house or whatever, but uh, so that's, that's the kind of role I, th- I think we play. And I think the, the my industry is really, I think they put a lot of credence. So if you look at the chefs, what I'm most proud of on that show is the amount of chefs who have come out who have done great things. After the show, it's pretty amazing. Um, you look at Stephanie Izard; has a, her empire in Chicago right yeah. now, and and uh, you know chefs like Michael Isabella, who finished like third or fourth or fifth—I don't even know—who's got like 14 restaurants now, and it's incredible. Kristen Kristen Kish, who yeah. won her season, is just doing amazing work, and not even having a restaurant, but just kind of doing uh, a, a ton of stuff. And so, yeah, so we're we're you know we we the chefs who have been on our season, so many of them are winning Beard Awards. They're you know, getting recognition for Food and Wine's Best New Chef, and and uh, you know, going out there and just doing great work. So that's yeah. what we're really proud of. So speaking of beer awards, I'm just staring at a beautiful wall uh,
1: <laughs> of plenty four or five beer awards. Do would you say accolades
0: matter to you or? Do you celebrate them or? Yeah, you celebrate them. But I think accolades matter only because it's, you know, years ago, the first interview I ever gave was by a journalist named Bill St. John. I was, I was doing a guest chef stint for a couple days in Denver. And actually, Thomas Keller and I were doing it together. And Bill St. John, a journalist, interviewed me and he said, What do you want out of the industry? I was 26. I'd just started working at Mondrian. I said, I just want recognition from my peers that I'm giving back. Hmm. And that was it. And, and you so, were like, That's interesting. Yeah. And so for me, that, that, and that's what the awards are about it's really because the awards are kind of your, your peer group are giving you the awards um yeah it's voted on by journalists and by a committee that's sort of in the industry and, and past winners and so it's really just recognition that you're, that you're giving back you're actually you're 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 doing something that is being recognized as that's how you celebrate them it's, it's a it's a they are milestones in your career but i think uh you can't kind of I mean, it's not the end of it. So yeah, I think, I think that's, yeah. We were backstage before a
1: panel you did with a Times talk with Rachel Ray a year or two ago. And we were, there was someone from the Times talking about or asking what trends you see on the horizon type thing. And you had said second floor restaurants, <laughs> which I was hu- hilarious. Yeah, which was hilarious because like three months later, there was an enormous article about second floor restaurants in
0: New York City. How do you keep up? How do you keep up with those trends or do you follow those trends? I don't. Was just... It, any Gling type thing? No, I don't. I mean, I, I think I made that comment because rents in New York are ridiculous. Yeah. And if you 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 know if you look at other cities like Hong Kong and Tokyo, there are restaurants on the second and third floor. And we have a few here now. And years ago, do you remember Yellowfingers? Santos' family owned it. It was across the street from uh, Bloomingdale's. And it was on the second floor. Oh. And uh, it was either the... Yellowfingers was downstairs and Contraprimto was upstairs, one or the other. I don't remember, but there was a second floor restaurant. But uh, yeah, I think with rents the way they are now, I think landlords, um, if they're looking to market a second floor, if they're at commercial spaces on the second floor, as long as they renovate their lobbies and maybe renovate their elevators and give us some signage out front and give us access to the basement, we can we can do restaurants on the second floor. and I think it'll be fine um, because the economics right now are really really difficult in, in, in New York in terms of, of rents. You know, it used to be where you wanted your rent to be around six seven percent of your revenue. Now, if you can manage twelve percent, you're doing well. It's crazy. Is there, are there any new chefs you like? Are there any chefs you keep an eye on? Type thing
1: or any chats currently you're like cure interested in?
0: You know, it's it's weird. I don't I don't get out much anymore. That was my um, next question. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I have a, a six year old and eight year old at home, and you know I have a 24 year old as well. And when I had my my 24 year old, I was you know building grammar sheets, and working too many hours and. Uh, his mom and I split up back then and uh, you know I, I look back on it and, and it's, it's a mistake I made mm-hmm. um, in, in my life not spending enough time with him but now I have a 6 year old and 8 year old and I am I'm try, try to be home most nights and uh, you know I see them for an hour in the morning before they go to school and I see them an hour you know at night if I get home before they go to bed and, and so I don't, I don't get out. I really, I don't get out much. Um, I always, I, every, every, every New Year's I make a resolution. Like I'm going to try to get oh, out once a month to a restaurant <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't get out there. It's hard. I guess when you have your own restaurants, plus you're well, traveling and yeah, shooting. And- yeah. But even then it's no excuse. Like I, I, I should get out more and yeah. should see who's out there. And, but, uh, um, yeah, it's because I'm also, I'm not seeing a lot of great stuff that's out there. And, you know, you follow some of it on social media and you see some, like right now, the restaurant I want to go to, because, because of social media is Hearts in Brooklyn. I just think that, you know, it seems like they're doing really cool things. Yeah. And uh, not just food-wise, it seems that they, they have a conscience about what they want to do. It seems to be sort of, they live and breathe it. It almost seems like in that restaurant. So I, I kind of want to check that out. It's, yeah, interesting. So how important is it for you, well, I asked two part question. I was going to say how
1: important is it for you to be a mentor to the next generation, but you also mention your kids. So, I guess we could lump those both together, sure, in a way, sure. Or it may,
0: they may be separate. However, you want. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I hope I'm mentoring the next generation of chefs in my restaurants. I have chefs in each of my restaurants, and, and uh, so I, I hope they're getting the benefit of being with, me, even though I, I'm not spending enough time with them either because of travel and because of, of other commitments and stuff. And for my children, I think this is what, you know, we're talking about this idea of, of women's equality. I think, you know, I, I don't know if it's too late for my generation. I mean, I'm 55. I don't, I don't know. I try to make a difference, still try to make a difference, but I think teaching our children what equality really means you know the idea that you don't have to be you know again I'll go back to my wife and she says she'll correct me a lot if my son gets hurt and I say you know you're okay shake it off he said no don't say that you know validate the fact that they're hurt say it's okay to be hurt. it's okay and and you can say you'll be better but don't say shake it off. so it's it's you know and that, yeah. those are those yeah. little micro things that right. we still need to focus on but I think teaching that generation that yeah that 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 girl who 's in class next to you she, she she may be smarter than you, and she could she could be she could she could play in sports too and and that 's okay and you know I think that you know again uh, I think that part of what we 're seeing right now is that men they have this sometimes deep shame because they 're taught to be tougher and you know, we think about this when you were a kid how many times did you hear oh you're acting like a girl right and that's, that's a pejorative yeah. right and so that message gets through and then all of a sudden you're in a working environment and you're seeing a woman who's next to you thriving and you're like what's wrong with me yeah and so that's that's You talk about mentoring, that's where we have to sort of mentor the next generation to sort of not hear that. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. Most of the chefs when I worked in kitchens, actually every chef I worked for was a female chef. So when people ask me these questions, I'm like, all I know is they fucking
0: kick ass. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like that's what I know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I always I always kind of got a little pissed at, at Top Chef. When Stephanie won, she was the first uh, you know, female chef that yeah. won, and, she, and they made a big deal. I'm like, no. I'm sure she wants to be known as a chef that won Top Chef. Right. Yes, she is a female, yes, but that's not why she won. She won because she was better. Yeah and uh so yeah but but i i think that's that's where you know we really need to mentor the next generation so they don't they don't get that 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 message yeah and, and they don't feel that shame because because there is a woman working next to them that's just working circles around. for sure yeah.
1: i want to touch on a couple of things growing up or getting into the industry type thing what was your first restaurant job
0: well, not so much a restaurant. Um, I ha- I always say it was the best job I ever had in this industry. I was I was 13 or 14 years old. My parents belonged to an Italian American swim club. Okay. okay, it wasn't wasn't some fancy country club. Trust me. Okay. <laughs> it was, and so uh, it was in New Jersey where I grew up, and um, there was a, and I think I started going there when I was about probably seven, eight. By the time I was 13 or 14, there was a snack bar there. And there was a, you know, every year somebody ran the concession there right. and they would make like burgers and grilled cheese sandwiches and hot dogs and stuff like that. And there was scoop of ice cream or whatever. It was, you know, a typical concession, snack bar, yeah. right. Snack bar concession thing. And so I had an interest in food and I, I don't know if my father told the guy, my son's interested in food. But anyway, he hired me and it was kind of midsummer and most likely, was, you know, I was hired to, like, work the cash register. Yeah. <laughs> but within a week, I was doing all the cooking. Right. <laughs> and I would work in a, in a pair of, like, you know, cut-off jeans and sometimes a shirt, never shoes, and... <laughs> And the guy was paying me like $275 a week under wow, the table. Wow. And uh, it, was, it was pretty awesome. Um, you know, the other thing is, the, I noticed about the third day that he picked me up that he was, he was, he was freshly stoned. Uh, <laughs> and so, freshly. And so yes. I, I, cause he, he would pick me up and drive me because uh, he lived in the same town that I lived in. Got it was it. about 25 minutes away from where we we're going. And so, about the, you know, a week into it, I said to him, uh, You know, you could share that. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was it was a pretty cool summer for me. So yeah. that was that was the first job that I ever had. That's um, funny. And I tell you what, like you know, and, I, and I, at that point I was reading cookbooks and studying, and and um, but it really taught me to be a short order cook, which it's, you know carried through. To, it didn't matter whatever restaurant I was working in. You know, once you learned how to manipulate heat, and move quickly behind the lines and and, and juggle a lot of different tasks at one time, it really sort of it's interesting it Really helped me Yeah, it it makes really sense did. it makes complete sense yeah. but it's interesting do yeah you, do, you ever want to see a great i mean you go to one of those old diners oh, where it's you can best. see there was when what uh, was the, the, the Empire Diner. Yeah. Back when, you know, 30 years ago, when I was going to the Empire Diner late at night, there was a woman who worked back there. She took the order. She was cooking everything. And it was just amazing to watch. I mean, it was like the toast would go down and she would turn to the eggs. And as she was moving towards the toaster, it was popping up. She didn't wait for it to come up. She knew exactly when. And she would grab it and slap the butter on an it. And egg. It was, just, it was like watching amazing. ballet. Yeah. It, was, it was great. Yeah, um, that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Did you have siblings? I have an older brother and a younger brother. Yeah. What influence did your family have on any of your career? Well, I mean, food was always important. I mean, I, was, I had had a family where I had to be home for dinner. My mom cooked most nights. My dad, every now and then, would throw something together. He was kind of more experimental. And um, my mom had the 20 dishes that she would kind of yeah. rotate through and every now and then come up with something new. And uh, so, but, but celebrations, uh, you know, whether it was... The holidays, you know, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, whether it was uh, birthdays and stuff, it always revolved around food. You know, looking back on it, two things besides loving to cook, um, I loved to fish. And when I was a young boy, you know, five, six years old, I would go fishing with my grandfather. And I had two jobs. One was to, to um, keep him awake on the way home. <laughs> um, and also... <laughs> it's an important job. Very, at a very young age, they put a knife in my hand and told me how to clean fish. Really? But we would have, we'd mostly crab and clam. Sometimes we'd catch fish. And we would do this, um, and we'd do it a couple times in the summer. We'd take the crabs, blanch them, clean them out, take the shell off, and then... cook them in marinara sauce hmm. and then serve the marinara over linguine and then pick through the crabs. And then if we had clams, there were sometimes clams on a half shell or we would steam them open. Um, fish was always just fried and it was this feast. And, you know, I think I learned at a very young age that it's not so much about the food. all The food's important. It's about bringing that family around the table, what food can really do. And so that's where I, you know, I, I still cook an awful lot, especially in the summer. Um, we have a, a place out on the North Fork, Long Island and The best times now are bringing friends we have a good group of friends out there and just having them all come around the table and you know uh hang out and have a good time so i learned at an early age that power of food but i was i was lucky getting back to the original question i was lucky when i was about 15 my dad said you love to cook why don't you become a chef now this was back when parents weren't suggesting that to kids and and quite frankly i don't think my dad died 28 years ago i think and my mom's still living but i don't think in his mind's eye, that he had this envision for. What me. was his career? Uh, he was a correction officer in a county jail. Okay. He was a barber. Um, when we were young, he had a barber shop, and then he sold the barber shop. And he was a he was a corrections officer in a county jail. Yeah. Interesting. But and so he said, well, why don't you become a cook?
1: And you, you didn't go to culinary school, yeah. but I was, I read an older article saying you
0: were planning on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he had a friend who was, uh, in air conditioning and refrigeration and in working, you know, did a lot of work in restaurants. And he said, oh, well, there's a school up in, you know, called the Culinary Institute. And my dad got some brochures and we filled them out and, Um, At the the time, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but you had to work in two restaurants before they would accept you, before they'd let you in school. Mm. And uh, so I started working. And uh, one restaurant led to another. And I think it was my fourth job where... I was working at the Quilter Trap in New York and Barry um offered me the sous chef position after about four months and at that point I, I wasn't going was to Catholic school. Yeah. yeah. Plus I was a terrible student. I um, most likely would have been diagnosed with ADHD and <laughs> went to Catholic school. The nuns had no idea how to deal with me. I became the problem child and uh you know, just had no desire to go yeah. to go back to school. I always had a love of learning. Um so I would read Graciously and and especially things that I I, I cared about, but uh, no. And so, you know, so I know, do <laughs> that. That's funny. So then, flash forward years after
1: that, you, we you start you touched on Gramercy Tavern a few yeah. minutes back. So you were founding chef partner back in ninety ninety four. Yeah, I think it was ninety four yeah. ninety four, yeah. which helped shape and which is still killing it today. Mm-hmm. How does a restaurant that's been around for twenty plus years stay relevant?
0: Well, I, I think, yeah, uh, how does a restaurant stay relevant? How does chef stay relevant? That too. That's, That's a great it's, it's question. If like a chef is relevant, usually the restaurant's relevant. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's never, you know, it's never about just kind of saying, well, this is how we do things that we can't change. You know, part of why I, I sold Gramercy, because I actually had a deal to buy Gramercy from Danny. And decided to sell it. And part of the reason I sold it, you know, I was there in Gramercy in its heyday when I was there anyway, um, was when Claudia Fleming was a pastry chef. Oh, right. Paul Greco was, a, was, was the beverage director or service director. Nick Matone was our general manager. Yes. I had, you know, people in that kitchen like Jonathan Benno and Marco Canora, Oktar uh, Nawab, James Tracy. I had two women who were, who were sous chefs, uh, Sarah Schaefer and Sarah... Wilson that's an all-star that are still working crew. i think in the industry another name a woman named deidre henry who i last checked was still working in los angeles we had a just a, a great great team jimmy who went on to that was his own family worked at back bar that's at one point so- robert Bohr was a, was also worked there as a back waiter as imagine a, as a buser, like all these people being in that restaurant today yeah. like- and so, part of the reason why I, I sold because again I was going to buy, it, but I, I thought I couldn't make that restaurant any better than it was at that at that moment. Especially if I was going on to to you know at, at, I, mean, I had already opened Craft. In fact, I think Craft was about a year old. And was Craft uh, was Danny
1: involved with Craft? No, 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 okay. no,
0: no. Danny was uh, we were working. You know, I was part of the Union Square Hospitality Group right, right when it was launched. And it was launched right around that time. Yeah. Um, when Danny and I got together, he had Union Square Cafe and quite frankly, didn't want to do a second restaurant, <laughs> I completed, it. Um, and uh, I actually approached Danny to, to do a restaurant. I, I met him in 1991 at Food & Wine in Aspen. Uh, Michael Wormano got Best New Chef the same year I did. And that's where I met Danny. And then he, he'd come into my restaurant. I was at Mondrian. He would come in quite frequently. And following year, I see him in Aspen. I said, listen, I'd love to talk to you. And so when we got back to New York, I told him I was closing Mondrian. And he said, "Well, why are you telling me?" I said, "Well, because I think you like what I'm doing. I like what you're doing. Maybe you want to do a second restaurant. Maybe we should get together." And he said no at first. And then he came back a week later and he said, "Yeah, let's talk." And you know, I asked him why the change, and he said, "There was um, Robert Chatterton, who's a, a wine uh, importer. He was a friend of both of ours." And and he said, "He said, you know, Danny, if Sandy Koufax asked you to picture your team, you'd probably say yes. That's great. Yeah, it was a pretty funny story. Um, for those that don't know, Sandy Koufax was a majorly." one of the greatest Major League Baseball yeah. player, pitchers ever. And so, but yeah, but I, I took it as far as I could take it, and I was kind of working on my stuff, and Danny was building the Union Square Hospitality Group, and uh, so we, we parted ways. And, at, you know, at times I still think, like, <laughs> it may have been the worst decision I ever made, because <laughs> um, I really look back fondly at, at those years, and, um, you know, it's funny now when people still say, you know, every now and then I'll show up for some event, and they'll say, you know, Tom Clickio, Grammar's Tavern. And I, I usually don't correct them because That's I funny. still feel that, you know, um, part of that restaurant, part, part of me. And when Danny, when Michael. Um, Did Michael come in when you, Michael Anthony, come in when you left? Yeah, Michael and Anthony came behind me, and okay. it was a great choice because I think Michael really um, lives those same values that we, that we started at Gramercy, and, and he was a, he was a great choice. And, and I know I was really touched when when Michael uh, wrote the Gramercy Chairman cookbook and Danny and Danny's introduction. He said a lot of a lot of great things, and so yeah. So I look back on those on those years, and and um, you know wouldn't trade them for anything. And. and uh, Um, But uh, sometimes I say "Hmm, maybe Mm -hmm. I should have. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's my question: you You've done more restaurants. Some have.
1: Some are still open. You've Mm -hmm. had restaurants close. So my question is: what does that feel like when a restaurant closes and you have to make that decision? Or what motivates you to keep going
0: at the same time? Yeah. You know, I've. I've. I've
1: You're also sorry. You're also a, a, a savvy,
0: smart business chef, if you will. I hope. I hope. You know, it's, <laughs> it's tough. It's everything. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I surround myself with good people. It's tough. We've opened, I think, 13 restaurants, and we're down to six Right that's, now, that's without counting witchcraft. Or no, it's not counting witchcraft. That's set witchcraft separate. You know, we had a restaurant in Dallas where the whole development went kind of bankrupt, and so we lost our deal there. Same thing happened in Atlanta. We opened in Foxwoods uh, Casino in, in Connecticut, and you know, right before the recession, it just didn't work out, and they, they ended up putting a mall for our restaurant instead. So, um, but uh, and then you know, Colicchio and Sons. We opened as a steakhouse. Turned the Colicchio and Sons got. You know, a, we had a great run. Uh, rent started creeping up and it didn't make sense anymore. Same thing with Craft Bar. The original Craft Bar is right downstairs from from our office now, and we had a great run, run there. We moved it, and then again the lease came up, and the, the rent went from like you know thirty thousand dollars to seventy thousand dollars like, in like a month, and it was like, nah, time to move on. And so, but they're hard to close, and they're hard to close because people work there, and you know we often try to place people who are are displaced when the restaurants close and other restaurants that we have or we try to hold on in in fact in in the Colicchio Sons we kept it open knowing that Temple Court was going to open up the Beekman Hotel and moved as many people there as possible but yeah that's why it's hard because they're they're, you know the restaurants are kind of like living breathing things um, even though they're not Um, but um, and they have a lot of memories so when you close them, those memories kind of fade away very quickly and so yeah they're hard it's hard to make that decision but you make those decisions because they're good business decisions and uh you kind of when you're making those decisions as passionate as you want to be about the people who work there and about the you know the, the the history of the space you almost have to be dispassionate when you make those those, dis, those business decisions yeah. and stuff. you mentioned there's people that work there and, and i get and it's interesting
1: because my next question was getting into some headline stuff and mm-hmm. how you've been outspoken of how people are treated in the industry and clearly restaurant chefs have been making headlines recently mm-hmm. so I do want to get your reaction and and talk about like what needs to be done and I, you probably are going to feel like a broken record but maybe you have some same new thoughts because I was reading Jose Andres' tweets this morning and it, people ask me that too it's like Oh, I'm never going to go back to Spotted Pig or this restaurant and then Jose's like well that's not the answer because there's people who work there right. so I, I, I honestly I don't know where I fall on that like am I not going to go to Italy to get something because Mario's affiliated, but there's also hundreds of thousands
0: or thousands of people that are affiliated with these. That's a personal decision you make, yeah. and I'm, I'm certainly not going to tell people where they should go and how they should support people, and I think I think you're right. There are people who work there and are earning a living there, and you certainly don't want to hurt them. On the other hand, if they're not making the money there, there's plenty of other restaurants they can go to. I don't know. It's, 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 it's a tough one. You know, I think that's up to the individual. Where we need to go, this isn't... This, this isn't a restaurant problem although restaurants probably shoulder more blame than maybe some other industries but but maybe not this is a problem that we have with our culture and that's what needs to change and it needs to change everywhere and it needs to change but I think that the, the real in, inequity here is that there's a, a unequal distribution of power. Women actually wield power differently than men do. I think that some of the the, the, the inequities are really economic Inequities that that are really, uh, I, I think the 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 one of the problems that we have to uh, address. I think that again, the generation that we're in, we can make a little difference. I can make differences in my restaurant. It's hard to make big cultural, I and mean, we're seeing a huge cultural shift. And it's, I think, it started with Trump's presidency. I think it. You saw in the Women's March, you're seeing it the Me Too March. You know, women are fed up, they're finding their voice. But I think what you see here is that prior to what's happening now, you know, women had a choice, they can go to HR, usually that was straightened out. Um, they could go to, you know, so what were are there options? Sue someone in civil court? And then, is there an attorney that's gonna take that case? If they do, what are the damages? What are they gonna, is it worth it? And so, but now I think women are seeing, you know what, people are, uh, you know, Power, these, these powerful people are getting, getting knocked down. They're losing, and what are they doing? They're losing their power. It's hurting them economically, but they're also losing their power. And so that's what becomes strong. So women are taking that power back and saying, we do have a voice, and damn it, now you're really going to listen. But ultimately, we gotta get, we're going to get past this. And then we're going to get into the real nitty-gritty of it. We're going to get into the economics of it. The fact that in our industry, women drop out because they have to make a choice between raising a family or working crazy hours. So in our industry, do we stop in, expecting people to work crazy hours? Do we, do we actually look at, you know, I think one of the, the, the big things that we can do in this country to, to sort of uh, create a, an equitable playing field is we need national daycare and, and nighttime care for kids. Because it, I, I know in my family, listen, I can I can say, listen, I'm having we had a baby. I'll, I'll take off a little bit. I'm going back to work. In my for some reason in my mind, I could just go and do that. I can go and say, well, I got to go leave for five weeks to go shoot a show, and I'm not going to see my kids for five weeks, and it's, it's going to bother me, but it's not going to kill me. My wife feels differently about it. It affects her very differently. It's a different psychology, and I can't say I don't understand that because I feel a certain way. She under, She feels that way. It's it's valid, and, but. So how many women are leaving the business because they have children and they feel a different way? Now, I believe if health, if if childcare were something they didn't have to worry about, that's one fewer impediment that they have to staying in in the industry. So we've got to, we've got to get, we're going to get past this moment, but it's not going to end with this moment. This is the beginning. I mean, again, I equate this to, to, you know, civil rights. Um, Again, it didn't end with 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 uh, the, the Civil Rights Act, are are with Voters' Rights Act, um, we're still struggling with it now. If um, you see marriage equality, marriage equality is one of those things that actually turned very quickly. But it's it's in 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 a lot of people's minds, it's not over yet. Yes, it's the law, the law of the land right now, but we have to be vigilant to make sure it stays that way. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we're going to struggle with this for a while. And so we have to. Again, make sure that, that future generation that, that, you know, that they're growing up and understanding that there, there is no difference. Like, I, I, I didn't grow up colorblind. Um I grew up in the in the 60s. Um, I was born in 1962. I remember the riots. I remember my father coming home with a shotgun because of the riots. And I, I remember having to make a choice. Like, I have black friends and that's okay where other people would kind of look at me like, are you, like, like that, you shouldn't do that. And so right now, we're seeing that with, with, with women. We're seeing that struggle, so it's, it's, not, it's not gonna end. And so my children right now, this is the point I was making, my children I, I believe are colorblind. I, I believe they are. And we make sure that, that they are. We make sure that, that they understand what civil rights are about. They, they understand that, people of color didn't have the same quality that white people had and that and that has to change and we're you know and, and so it's a continuum and i think that again when when children are raised to realize that women have the same power they do then it will change but that's that's where these conversations need need needs to go right now it's 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 present we're going to stop the you know the the inequity in the workplace but we have we have to move beyond that yeah Thank you. All right. I want to get into
1: the end here with social impact and giving back. I was talking to a friend who helps me produce this podcast, and I was like, he's, he's, he uses his voice for good, and he's like, I, I don't get it. What do you Explain to me he uses his voice for good. I was like, he's got one of the loudest, most active voices when it comes to uh, speaking up, giving back for the good of humanity in a great way. And you do that through food policy action, which I want you to talk about, um, a place at the table, um, which we can touch on. But I, I know even beyond that, because chefs are some of the most giving people, I believe, in out there. And I've seen you do things for Food Bank and tons of other organizations. So where to start? Can you share what is food policy action?
0: Sure. Food policy action... It, it, let's start back with a place to the table let's start there first because actually food policy action came out of that got it um, so a place at the table is a film that that my wife made um, I helped produce but but she co-directed it with uh, another woman named uh, Chrissy Jacobson and again this goes back to there are there are pivotal moments um, in your life when you decide that you got to do something different than what's sort of Happening, so you're you're right. Chefs, I, I call them the first responders of, of fundraising. You know, whenever there's a, an organization that you know is a charity, and need fundraising. Chefs are there doing dinners, donating time. And um, for you know, last thirty years as a chef, I've I've helped uh, organizations to raise money, like Meals on Wheels. And I think chefs also have an affinity for hunger organizations as well. I think deep down inside, we believe that we're um, we feed people. We feed people with money, but we also Believe that, that food is a right and everybody should have access to healthy, affordable food. Meals on Wheels, do work with uh, God's Love We Deliver, um, No Kid Hungry, Shower Strength. And, and um, so, yeah, but, but so my wife was mentoring a young girl um, who she met through another organization that provided dance lessons after school to, to children um, up in Harlem. And she met this, this, this young woman and um, decided that she was going to mentor her, she was going to be a big sister. She would come to the house and for dinner and, and stuff, and, and she was living in a shelter at the time, and was really had a tough life. And so we, you know, we would just hang out with her, and, and my wife realized that she had some some learning disabilities. She was probably reading at a third grade level. She was much older than that. And so in New York City, if this public school system can't meet the needs of the child. They actually have to put them into a private school setting or a school that can actually teach them to, to their disabilities. And so we got her into a, a, a program. About a week into the into the school year, the principal called up and said that this woman's clearly, this girl's clearly hungry. Um, she's scrounging around for food, asking people for food. But we didn't realize in public school they have breakfast programs, they have lunch programs, that this school didn't. And so she was getting nothing. And so my wife came home frustrated and said, you know, we got to make a film. She's a filmmaker. Um, Prior to this, she didn't make documentary film. She reached out to a friend of her, Christy Jacobson, who makes documentaries, says, is is there a film here? And then really started to explore it Hmm. and spent a good, probably two years exploring hunger. And what we found out very quickly was that, especially in in this country, that people aren't hungry because of famine, because of war, because of drought, uh, other issues in, in developing countries. They're hungry here because of politics. Because we don't, have the political will to make sure that everybody's fed and then also found out that back in the late 60s, we kind of addressed this issue and almost wiped out hunger in this country. And it started with a piece of media. It started with a, 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 a hour-long documentary that was on CBS News called Hungary in America. Back then, there were three networks, no cable, and a lot of America saw this. And they saw children living in horrible conditions. And uh, it, it kind of was a, re- it was a result of Robert Kennedy, who did a, a tour of, uh, of, 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 of you know people living in poverty and also— uh, uh, Native American reservations and uh, documented people really starving, hmm. and he brought a bunch of doctors with him and nutritionists with him, and then that that spurred on the the, the this this film and. The country all of a sudden saw, you know, how people, the conditions that some people were living in, and it, it was sparked outrage. Senators Dole and McGovern uh, to get together, to um, plus a lot of other leaders, to get together and, and uh, write legislation to modif- modify, uh, modernize the food safety network, signed into law by Richard Nixon. But back then, it was a, a bipartisan issue to end this. And we pretty much did until the 80s. And this is sort of the, the work that my, that my wife and Christy did as they, as they researched the film. And so they thought, well, a piece of media could do that again. They made a place at the table. It came out and did, did really well. It, it premiered at Sundance. It got distribution. We Mm -hmm. took it around to college campuses and and community centers and things like that. And the idea was to get this message out there and really to sort of break down some of the stereotypes of who's hungry, why they're hungry, and what can we do about it, and why it's a good thing for this country to end hunger. One of the talking heads in the film, a guy named Ken Cook, who ran the Environmental Working Group, his wife ran League of of Conservation Voters. And so he you know, kind of talked and came up with this idea to do something based on... on, uh, LCV, um, and uh, the first idea was to create an organization called Food Policy Action. Um, It was a C4, so it's more of a political group, and our first thing that we did is we created a scorecard. So our idea was we were going to grade Congress on how they vote on food issues, hunger being one of them, but also food and the effect it has on the environment, food and uh, um, sort of issues around farming, transparency in the food system, marketing in the food system. We were going to take on all these issues, and we were going to highlight people who were making good decisions and really kind of uh, give really bad grades to people who are making poor decisions. And, and uh, we're six years in now. We released our sixth scorecard uh, a couple months ago. People are, are focused on this now. And, and, but, so we also have a C3, which is our educational foundation, and we're running the, the Place at the Table campaign because we found out that even though this film was great, still meet, more people need to understand the issues. So, food policy action is really dedicated to, again, this issue that food um, is a right, and food, you know, nutritious uh, uh, food should be food food should be available to all people. It should be nutritious. It should, should be accessible, and that that there are politics in place that work against that. And so, that's what that's what we're working on. The place the table campaign. This is kind of interesting. We had the the, the good fortune of having a, a gentleman by the name of Tim Castry who was now the CEO of a global um, marketing group, um, and, an ad buying group. And, and, and he reached out and managed to put together a lot of of donated media for us to, to run a messaging campaign. So we spent the last year and a half kind of focusing on our message. so we're about to, to to launch our, our campaign. We did a a soft launch a couple, a couple, almost a year ago now with Michelle Obama, but, uh, now we're working to relaunch the campaign and, and, uh, so again, teaching people sort of about hunger, who's hungry, why they're hungry, the idea that there are 13 million children that are hungry, and if they're going to school and they're hungry, they're not learning, it impacts the, their ability to learn, it impacts their ability to stay focused, it, it has a, a big effect on, on their productivity in the future. And so again, we're looking at children, we think that children of the future, we think that education is the key to upward mobility, and yet a lot of kids are showing up at school hungry. And so we want people to understand that, we want people to understand that there are, are seniors that are struggling with hunger, who have to make decisions every single day whether to buy food or medication. And then if, if they're taking medication on an empty stomach, they're getting sick. We also want people to understand that veterans, that there's 1.5 million veterans right now who use food stamps to feed their families and feed themselves. And there'd be a lot more if there wasn't the stigma about using food stamps or, or SNAP. And it actually, you know, the impact that it has on, on veterans. All with this idea that this sort of horrible... Messaging that we saw starting in the 80s that these are welfare queens, the queens, that they're working the system, that they're lazy. Well, actually, the majority of families that are on food stamp have at least one member of the family working mostly full time, some working three jobs to try to make ends meet. Again, seniors, they've already given their, their, their you know, what they figured for society and they're struggling. Would anybody actually point their finger at, at, at a vet who's coming home with PTSD, who can't find a job, who has to use these, these, these benefits to help feed their family and say they're lazy? No. But again, so this is, this is the kind of that, messaging that we need to get out there to to let people sort of understand what's at stake here, what's important, and use the backdrop of the fact that in the last budget to come out of the, out of the White House and the Republican-led uh, Congress, they want to cut $160 billion out of the food stamp program over the next 10 years. All that's going to do is create more hungry people. Now, what we really want to do is create jobs so people can have better paying jobs, more jobs, so they actually don't need food stamps. The goal should be less people on food stamps. I think both sides would agree to that. Right. How do you do that? You don't do it by, by passing huge tax breaks that are not going to do a damn thing for wages. And so I don't believe that anybody's pro-hungry or pro-hunger um, but sometimes people act that way, you know. Just wishing that these jobs are going to show up—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not not going to happen. And so, so that's that's what the Place the Table campaign is. That's what food policy action does. And uh, so, yeah. So I use I I try to use my voice for good. I try to push social change. I try to run my my business with with uh, an idea for social change as well. In fact, the last year we spent time. Um, trying to understand how to merge the two because I always try to keep my activism aside from my business but now we're understanding that the two actually should be joined together interesting. and so um actually that's what this this is all all here on, yeah. my, on my desk nice. right now um and so yeah listen you know you have a short time here and you you, you know you try to make an impact try to leave something behind that that's worthwhile and you know, when I became well known—I hate to use the word famous or celebrity—it's like, what do you use your celebrity for? The days of you know clubbing and acting up—that's over for me. So, how, <laughs> how do you use your voice for change? And and uh, and you know, I don't do it because I'm a chef. I don't do it because I'm a celebrity. I don't do it. I do it because. I'm a, a father to, to three children, and I want them to live in a better place than we're leaving right now. Unfortunately, I don't think we're doing that. I think the environment is a mess. I think we're we're seeing uh, you know a, a world that's that's continually at odds, and so you know, you know I just feel I'm, I'm obligated to 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 speak up and do whatever I can. Yeah, that was incredible. Thank you. So to recap,
1: there's a lot of initiatives, causes, organizations. And I know you've spoken up about things from child nutrition reauthorization to farm bill to food safety to SNAP to, you know, WIC, women, infant, children and Mm -hmm. tons of issues based around this. So you've with some people have created food policy action. You guys put out a Mm scorecard. So basically you put out a scorecard that is a report card for all intents and purposes for politicians mm-hmm. and you anyone could go on there to see how their senator or whomever ranks. Congress, yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: well what you also see is you see how they rank but you also see what they voted on you see uh the bills um, that they've either passed or sponsored or co-sponsored and uh you can see why we believe some of these bills are good for for the, you know for good food are bad um we'll explain it and um uh, you'll see how your member of Congress voted. I would encourage people to, to check it out. It's foodpolicyaction.org. And if you don't like the way your members voting, call them up. You know, there, there's people sometimes, you know, people, I think we're cynical about government, but I think now we're seeing, you know, when we started taking the film out, that was part of the message of the film that we can end hunger, look at what's going on when the farm bill is being debated, spend, you know, focus on that, but also use your voice. You know, Big supporters of, of food banks, but that's not going to end hunger. That manages hunger. You know, a, a good example is if we double the charitable response to hunger, double the amount of money that's going into every charity that has to deal with with dealing with hunger, we only reduce hunger by 10%. So you see that this is something that charities can't do. They can help manage hunger. They can help you know in their communities and help people that are struggling, and that's great. But we need a a government response to, to hunger, to end hunger. And we can't end hunger. That's just it. It's not something that we can, you know, it's not like AIDS. It's not like f- peace in the Middle East. You know, we we can we know how to do this because we've done it before. So with food policy actions, and, and not just hunger, but all these food issues, call your member of Congress. And you can write an email, but sometimes pick up that phone and call. We know from the time I spend, I, I'm, 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 you know, at least once a month, I'm on the hill, you know, talking to members of Congress, you know, knocking on doors and sitting down and both sides and, 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 uh, you know, but you have to let them know where you stand. You have to let them know what's important. And so why food? So, you know, the last election we were out there, we were, you know, sort of trying our best to get, um, the candidates to sort of talk about food and people will say, Tom, weren't you disappointed that you didn't hear, you know, these candidates didn't weigh in about food. I said, well, I heard them talk about food every day. Like are like, you're, you're kidding yourself. I said, no, no, no. I, maybe I'm listening a little different, but I hear them talk about food every single day. He said, well, when? I said, well, I hear them talk about health care. We heard that, talked a lot about in the last election. And they said, so what does that have to do with, with food? I said, oh, well, we spent $200 billion a year on, on health care that's sort of related to poor diet whether it's through diabetes heart disease certain cancers um, various uh, issues around obesity so yeah i, I heard food talked about all the time i heard the environment talked about right? So, well yeah i said well the way we produce food is often detrimental to the environment we can actually change it we can actually keep more carbon in the soil and and if, if we are farming with better farming practices also the amount of, uh, of pesticides that are being used that end up, you know, running off and getting into our water uh, water stream that's creating dead zones in the in the. Gulf of Mexico. That's a direct result of the way we're farming. If you uh, uh, again look at waste, the amount of food that we waste in this country, if if the way if food waste were a country, it would be the number three contributor to greenhouse gases because a lot of that food is, ends up in, in um, ends up in landfills and uh, emits methane. And so, so yeah, so it has a lot to do with the environment, national security. Well, what does food have to do with national with the national security? Well, twenty five percent of the recruits that show up to fight in our military wash out because they're not fit to fight. So because they're they're, they're malnourished. And so, yeah, so food has to do with national security. Um, the economy, I believe that if, if, if we if we work on all of these things um, through food, that there's a lot that we can do with the economy. If people are healthier, they, they actually are more active. Uh, Health care costs come down. They can actually spend money on other things, which will boost the economy. So, so yeah, so all these things that are important to you when you go in and make that decision who to vote for, the, the four big things that are in your, on your mind, food never is. But I, w- I want people to understand that food actually plays a real important role in all those things that you care about. And that's why, you know, I've heard too many times, Tom, it's food, stay out of politics. Every single thing we eat is touched by policy. Therefore, it's touched by politics.
1: Yep. So what do you see as a North Star for food policy action?
0: Um, you know, our North Star, I think, uh, you know, elections are coming up, midterms are coming up. We're going to try to get out there and try to get as many candidates as possible to sort of weigh in on these, on these issues, you know, we start hearing, you know, there there are people out there that are starting to. I ran into Tom Vilsack uh, a couple months back. I was on a panel with him, and I heard him talking to someone, and I was I was listening, and he's like, "Yeah, so I'm out, you know, on college campuses right now talking about food and and, and what it can really do when it comes to to, to uh, you know become more you know making it more political." And, and he looked at me, goes, "Yeah, you're the guy who started that." <laughs> so and so um, you know it's starting. We're starting to hear, and and why why are we hearing it now? Because this is what's important to, I hate to use the M word, millennials, but they really care about this issue. And they've become, they're becoming the, the biggest voting block out there soon. Also, young mothers really care about what they're feeding their children. Minorities really care about food because it, 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 food really is—it's become a, a social justice issue. A lot of different constituencies really care about food and, 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 and better food. They wanna eat, and this idea that, that in our country, calories are cheap but nutrition is expensive, that has to change. And so that can change through good policy. You know, that's, that's where we're heading with this. Again, we, we really think that that's, this is a fight worth having. We want to make sure that candidates who are running for, for, for Congress or for Senate, that they're actually talking about these issues, and that's why we have the scorecard. You know, a couple of years ago when our second scorecard came out, you know, we heard people kind of, you know, eh, well, you know, why did I get a bad score, third scorecard? It was like, wow, well, boy, if I, had, if I knew someone was keeping track, I would I maybe mean, I would have voted differently. And it's like, bingo, that's exactly what we're looking for, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so we want to, we want to make food a, a more important political issue. And, and, you know, we have a lot of allies out there who are the chefs. People like Jose Andres that you mentioned is doing such great work and so many others. Uh, Andrea Rushing, who's a chef in, in North Carolina, who's really active and has a really strong voice for these issues as well. So, I mean, there's a million... I, uh, I you know I'm leaving out. You know, we 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 actually work with the the Beer Foundation. Actually, started doing these boot camps to, to train um, chefs how to actually talk about these issues and actually go and lobby. I heard about this. Yeah, it's really great. And so we actually take those chefs, um, food policy action, to works with them, and we take the chefs up, up to the hill. I mean, there are times we we're up there with forty chefs. That's so awesome. chefs are really leading. They have great voices for this, and they're passionate about it. And they're actually, you know, also when we go into our, our members Congress office, you know, we're creating jobs. They know who they know the chefs are so it's it's really it's really impactful and uh that's awesome so yeah so we're gonna we're gonna keep doing that and uh we're gonna you know uh keep keep pushing on this on this issue so i just want to close out with a fun speed round of questions and then one last question after that what did you have for dinner last night well it was hanukkah and um but it was was second night but it was kind of a combination of of leftover I i know there was there was roast chicken um, just uh, chicken thighs. I think it was chicken thighs. Some Brussels sprouts. Some peas. Cause my kids love peas, so we can get them to eat peas. And then there was also some roasted, uh, roasted vegetables that were left over from the night before. <laughs> fennel, and sweet potato, uh, fennel and squash. Um, and also there was soup. There was a kale and, and uh, bean soup. Nice. What's your wife's, Lori's favorite dish that you make? Oh, Actually it's kale it's kale soup it's favorite, but it wasn't this one uh I I make a, a soup with clams uh spicy uh like chorizo clams uh kale and beans and that sounds like amazing a, that's her that's her favorite favorite ingredient to cook with
1: um mushrooms an ingredient you don't need to see again on the plate of a top chef contestant <laughs>
0: Uh, that's a good question. I, 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 it's, it's, it's well documented. I'm not a fan of okra and every now and then they, they try, but yeah. not a fan.
1: Uh, smell in the kitchen you love? The smell of roasting meat. Smell in the kitchen you hate?
0: Sort of, you know, I, I like a clean kitchen, but right after it's clean, that sort of soap or antiseptic smell, it's, uh, it's not good.
1: What pisses you off in the kitchen?
0: Uh, a mess. And what makes you happy? <laughs> the organization. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, there, there's, you know, there's times when you're cooking, if you're doing a dinner party at home. yeah, you know, Restaurants are different, but if you're doing a dinner party, restaurants are great also when you're having that service where everything's clicking, man. There's nothing like that. It's yeah. great. Um, but the same thing at home. If you're, you know, I don't like being rushed if I'm cooking at home, so I'll start early and get things going. Because right. and, and I have no idea what I'm going to cook. Because I, you know, again, the garden, mostly this is summer. But when things just start clicking and you see the dish and it's like, you know that in like about another 30 seconds, it's perfect, and it's like, yeah and you're just dialed in, and it's just great. And that, yeah. that's, there's no better feeling than that. That's awesome. What is next for Tom Klikio? People suggest I should run for Congress. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> At least not now. Um, I won't completely shut that door, but it's not that, happening right now. That was now. Uh, Zimmern's, actually. It wasn't what's next, but like, if you weren't cooking right now, or... Yeah, I'm I'm a a political junkie and and, um, but I don't I don't know if I'd be good at it. I don't know. But what's next? Keep speaking up, keep talking, keep engaging people. You know, right now, some of the some of the big issues is we got to passion immigration reform. We got to get DACA, you know, done here in this country. Those are those are big issues sort of. There in my mind right now. No, I nothing really. Just to keep, just to keep going. Again, trying to trying to make it trying to make a difference in my businesses, my, my personal life, and and uh, that, that's really it. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Th- this was excellent. I know it's
1: a this is a ton of. A wealth of information for people who listen and i often get emails and calls after most of my episodes of people saying how they made a difference and i'm super excited for this one to post because i think there's going to be a lot of people asking how to get involved with what you're up to so for me that's the point All right, of this. Thank, so no, thank well, you thanks thanks yeah, appreciate it cool Quote, this idea that in our country calories are cheap but nutrition is expensive, that has to change. That can change through good policy. Thanks again to Chef Tom Colicchio. Find more on him at CraftedHospitality.com or FoodPolicyAction.org. Join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. You may find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to BeyondThePlatePodcast.com. We are also on Twitter at BTPlatePodcast and Facebook. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joe Tin, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And a very special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.